Good to see you this morning, church family. Hope. I told you last week it was the beginning of spring, and yesterday it was both spring and winter all in one day. Uh, Started off the day hot and humid and wet, and by the end of the day I was walking around in a jacket. So you just never know what's going on. But glad you're here this morning, church family. Uh, It was about uh, sometime around a decade ago there was a movie that came out called Invictus. And it was a movie, if you're a sports movie person, maybe you'll know it. You don't, you don't have to if you're a history person. But the movie is focused on the true story of, I believe it was the 1994 or 93 South African rugby team and how they won the championship. And it centers around the relationship of the captain with, uh, with Nelson Mandela, who had been recently freed from prison. And all this to say that the, the reason for the name is this poem called Invictus. It's the name of the poem, Invictus, and the poem talks about, come what may, circumstances of life, highs, dark bellows, low, and it ends with the line, I am the captain of my soul, I am the master of my fate. At the same time, I had a friend uh, I grew up with who's in the Air Force Academy, and they had to recite that like every day. He hated that poem with all of his gusto. Uh, But the poem makes for a great story, right? Here's this team, no matter what circumstances, hardships come, I am the captain of my soul, I am the master of my fate, I'm going to push through, I'm going to pull myself, all my ability, all my achievement, here's the goal, here's the end, we're pushing toward it. It makes for a great movie. And as the Scripture is going to expose today, it makes for a horrible way to follow Jesus Christ. So I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, to open them to the book of James chapter 4. We're going to be in James chapter 4. If you don't uh, have your Bible or you forgot or you don't have one, we'd love for you to use the Pewback Bible in front of you. The page numbers will be on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that at the end of our time of worship today as a gift from us to you. Now remember, as we come here to James chapter 4, he... James has been walking through in chapter 4, and he has described at the beginning of chapter 4 friendship with the world, that there is a way of living where I am in conformity and approval and loving of the world, of its ways, of, of its ways of thinking, its mode of operating. And that's in contrast to what he will say, which is, submit therefore to God, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So there's these contrasts. There's friendship with the world and patterning and conforming my life off the world's plans, and there is humility with and before God. That humility changes everything. It transforms our preferences, our pursuits, the way we handle conflicts, the way we speak about each other, and as we'll see today, that humility transforms the way we plan and order our life. Look with me, James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, or to phrase a different way, step on up to the plate, step forward. You who are going around saying, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and we'll spend a year there, we'll engage in business and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow or you do not know what tomorrow holds, what your life will be. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We will live, and we will also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil, is wicked. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin." 
And so here James comes in this passage where we've, we've, we've seen a contrast of friendship with the world. We see humility, and he says, all right, those of you who are confident, assured, diehard planners, step up to the plate. Come up forward. Move, move now with seriousness, with, with intensity. Come up. Those of you who are walking around whose pattern of life, you're not just saying, you're not just saying something one time, but there is a pattern of your life where you are habitually talking about the, the, the assurance of your plans. And look what he, he uses. He uses uh, what would have been a picture to them of a traveling tradesman. Now, don't mistake the example here. He's not picking on business people. But he's using an example of, of tradesmen who in, in back in that time would would take their business, they would pick up their stuff, they would go, they, they would have extensive uh, knowledge and foresight, they'd recognize what cities were prime for their business, they'd go into that city, they'd set up camp, they'd work their magic, they'd reap a profit. This is the example he uses. He says, you people who are continually saying, we're gonna go, we're gonna do this, we're gonna spend this amount of time there, this is what we're gonna do, this is what it's gonna result in, and all of it is in the future tense. If you look, we will go to such and such a city, we will spend a year, we will engage in business, we will make a profit. The idea being that those who are speaking in this way, there is such a confidence, it's as if it's done. This is my plan, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going. And James brings this up and says, hey, step up to the plate, you who are doing this. Now let's be clear as we walk through the passage, church family. There's two things right off the bat we ought to notice. One, James is emphasizing what? You who say. You who say. There's been a pattern all throughout James. In fact, it's one of the three great themes, and we saw it last week, is how we speak. Why? Because James picks up on the truth that Jesus was very clear about. What comes out of our mouth overflows from our heart. The idea is you who are saying these things, you are saying these things because it is coming out of your heart, out of the place where your will, where your desire the place where you make your plans, the place where you formulate your beliefs, that place that is what's being reflected through this confidence about your own plans, your own ways, your own things. James's concern here is with the heart. And we'll also, as we walk through, his concerns with the heart, his concern is not with the issue of should you plan or should you not plan. There's some of you in the room this is your favorite time of year because two months ago you bought your, your planner for this year and you've got it all cute and color and color coordinated and you were just, it's, well, this could be you or it could not be you. James's issue is not with planning. It's not with business. It's not with capitalism. Can you engage in business and make a profit? No, James's issue here is with a kind of planning, a kind of ordering of our life that is driven not by humility Independence upon the Lord, but is driven by human logic, by self-sufficient, self-focused, God-excluded planning and ordering for how we, and specifically we who are in Christ, we who have been saved by grace through faith, who have been given a personal relationship with Jesus, how we order our lives. 
And here's why the issue's there, because such, such confidence where we sit here and go, let me show you my 10-year plan. This is what it's going to do. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to graduate with this degree. I'll go into this field. I'll do this. I will go here. Here's where I'll get married. We'll wait this long to have kids. We'll the reason such is, such is off is it fails to recognize the issues that come with being a human. And look what he says back in verse 14. Here's the first issue. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, or maybe your Bible says it this way, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What kind of life is yours? The first issue with such kind of uh, a self-assured planning and ordering of life is the fact that you and I are ignorant. We don't know what the future holds. We do not possess all knowledge. Here, here's the real sobering reality, and I don't share this in any way to be morbid, but all of us would love to assume this time next year we'll all be right here in this room gathered for worship. But the reality is not one of us knows if we'll be here next year. We'd like to think we would. We'd like to think we know, but we don't know. We don't know if we're even going to make it home today. We don't know because our knowledge is limited to right here, right now. We have no knowledge of what tomorrow holds. We have no knowledge of when final breath comes. We have no knowledge. There's the issue of ignorance. Proverbs commands, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. There's also not just the issue of ignorance. There's the issue of frailty. Look at what he says, for you are just a vapor, you are just a mist that appears for a little while, then disappears, then vanishes away. This kind of language is all throughout Scripture. Psalm 144, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath, his days like a passing shadow. Psalm 39 says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Help me know my purpose and the limited uh, reality of my life. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my day as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them which picks up what Moses prays in Psalm 90, teach me, O Lord, that I, to number my days that I may present to you a heart of wisdom. Here's the reality, church family. Not only do we not have knowledge of the future, but there is nothing more frail in this world than human life. It's not glass. It's not fine china. It's not all those things can break when you drop it. There is nothing more valuable than life, and there is nothing more frail than life. One second a person is living, one second their body is an empty shell. Life is frail, it is short, it is temporary. We are here for a moment that to us feels like a long time, but in reality is absolutely nothing. There's the issue of frailty. Not only is there the issue of frailty, but there's the issue of dependence. Look what it says. Instead of, instead of this kind of speech, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and notice two things. We will live, and we will also do this or that. He doesn't say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That would seem to apply, well, if God allows it, then we'll, we'll accomplish these things. No, 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 he breaks it up. If the Lord wills, one, we will live. Which means our very ability to have life and breath right now in this moment is only possible 
because God who made every one of us fearfully and wonderfully, who knows our name, who knows the number of hairs on our head, the only reason any one of us in this room has the breath of life is because at this moment God wills it. We're completely dependent upon God's good grace for life itself. Not only that, but if life is dependent upon, upon, upon God Himself, not only that, but what we do with our life is ultimately dependent. Now, again, there, there is a way of thinking that says if I just apply myself, if I work hard, if I outwork the rest, cause and effect, I will accomplish these goals, accomplish these things. And it's not necessarily false. The reality is if, if you sit here and you've got a New Year's resolution that you want to be more knowledgeable and you're going to read X amount of books this year, if you commit yourself and you read X amount of books this time next year, you will be more knowledgeable. But the only reason certain things like that work in a cause and effect is why? Because God established them. Here's the flip side. You might have a brilliant mind. You might apply yourself faithfully at whatever your craft, whatever your vocation is. You might be arguably, tangibly, by whatever metrics you can measure your job performance better than everybody in your company, yet you never get promoted because this world's not fair. You weren't seen at the right time. There's other go down the list. The reality is there is this tension. There are things we think we can just accomplish anything we set our mind to. That's what we tell each other. You can do anything you set your mind to. False. You can do a lot of things. Some you set your mind to, some you don't. Some you'll be able to, some you won't. But what we understand is there is an aspect of what we can accomplish that is completely entirely dependent upon the Lord. And so because there is ignorance, because we are frail, because we are dependent, he says, instead you ought to say, instead what ought to be the posture of your heart, what, what ought to come out of your mouth, because it's the posture of your heart, is this recognition that the way that, that I will plan my life, the way that I will order my life, the way I will go about my daily tasks, anything from daily tasks to what is, what is the purpose and plan for my life long term? What are the specifics? Where do I go to college? Whom do I marry? What do I study? When do we have children? What job do I take? This offer, that offer, when do I retire? Where do we go? All of these things should flow out of a heart that recognizes I am not the captain of my soul and the master of my fate. But the Lord, God Almighty, Jesus Christ, is the master of my soul, the captain of my soul, the master of my fate. That out of the heart of humble submission before Him, I recognize that the way I plan my life, the way I establish goals in my life, the way that I go about New Year's resolutions, the way that I order the daily tasks of my life is all driven by His will and His ways that that is what to come over. And again, remember the emphasis. When he emphasizes speech here, what he's not talking about is adding something to your prayer life. He's not saying, you know what, today we're going to go eat lunch at Chewy's, if God wills. Tonight we're going to go get dessert from Andy's frozen, if God wills. He is not advocating for some kind of repetitious phrase that we toss on the end of things as if somehow by tossing if God wills onto something, it therefore makes it right. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a posture 
a posture, a, 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 an aspect of character and heart that is yielded independence before God. A state of heart-deep humility that is a fixed posture to pursue God, His will, His ways, to know His will, His ways, to honor and submit to His will and His ways in all things. And you see this pattern play out all throughout Scripture. It's even modeled in the life of our own Lord. Father, if there be any way for this cup to pass, let it be, however, not my will, but yours be done. There, Jesus verbalizes it. There's places in Paul's life we see he verbalizes in prayer. Lord, guide me in your will. There's other places where Paul doesn't add that, but the implication is because it's not about a phrase to add, it's about a posture of heart that drives everything we live and say and breathe and do. And because this is the reality, because we are ignorant, because we are frail, because we are dependent, and the posture of our heart, the call of the passage, the command of the passage is to be in humble diligence before the God who is sovereign over life, the God who is supreme over our plans, because that is the way it is, when we allow our plans and the order of our life to be driven in a self-sufficient confidence by the ways of flesh and the way of worlds. It's why James can say with such magnitude, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You boast in your arrogance. There is a pattern of your life where your confidence, your boasting, your pleasure, what brings you happiness is ultimately, he pulls the curtain back in our lives, it's your, 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 your boasting is not in your responsibility. Your boasting is in your arrogance. Your boasting is in your pretension. Your boasting is in a self-exalting, self-absorbed view of your own superiority where, where, where at the end of the day, no matter what you say, you really believe you have accomplished what you've done by the work of your own hands. That's what that word arrogance means. You boast in your arrogance. Well, how is it? Well, think, go back to, the, to, to what he says. You who say, step up, you who say, today or tomorrow. Well, there's an arrogance because it consumes a certainty and control of our lives we don't have. He says, we will go, we will spend, we will do, we will. There is an arrogance because it involves tangible action. He's not talking about something hypothetical. He's talking feet to the ground. There's, there's an arrogance there because it's something real, something tangible. There's an arrogance in there because it includes our own abilities, our talent. He says, we will conduct business. We will make a profit. If we, let me put it this way. If we want it bad enough, we can attain it. We can do it. As one person put it, as though human skill and cleverness were om, uh, omnicompetent. As if by my own ability, my own mind, my own plans, I can accomplish whatever I want. Here's why it's arrogant, church family. This kind of planning implies that we are the master of our own life and the Lord of our lot. It assumes that we know what is best, that our plans are in fact what are best, that the goals we've set for our life are in fact right, righteous, pure, holy, and best, that what we decide is our life's purpose is best, and that by our ability, we can bring it about no matter what circumstance. Now listen, when I phrase it that way and all of us are in church, it'd be pretty easy for someone to go, amen, pastor. But realize you could say that exact same thing in the college classroom and all you're doing is preaching and teaching the American dream. 
You can sit in a, in a room trying to look at hiring and go, wow, look at this, look at this person's resume. Look at, look at all the goals and objectives he set for himself. Look at, wow, this person is really responsible. What above the board? And, and it could be. And they could also be arrogant and completely dependent upon their own place. He says, it's arrogant. It ignores the fact that God is sovereign, not just over life, but he is sovereign and Lord over my life, over the details of our life, over the purpose of our lives, over the path of our life. It's something remarkable, church family, that the God of the universe actually cares about the path we walk in the details, even the most mundane of our life. He doesn't just care about them, but he went so far as to write down the days ordained what he would desire for our life in his book. It's arrogant because it runs against that. And here's what, here's what James says. He says, and all such arrogance is evil. Or your Bible may translate it wicked. And, and to you and I, evil, wicked, ah, that's, that's not a good thing, but it's not a... Um, if we were trying to go for clickbait on the sermon title, we probably wouldn't use evil or wicked. It's not, it doesn't sound too bad enough or, or scandalous or, but here's what's interesting. It's a word in Greek that's not actually used that often. It's a word that when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when are you going to show us a sign that you're Messiah? Forget the fact that you've healed the lame that you've healed the sick, you've, you've helped the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, you've brought the dead back to life. Forget all of those signs. When are you gonna in fact show us you are the Messiah? And Jesus' response to them is a wicked, an evil and perverse generation seeks a sign. It's the same word when, when Jesus is talking about the servant that, that the, the master told to go out and scatter seed and, and care for the outcasts who failed. It's the same word when Jesus gives the parable of the talents and you've got the three, the three servants. One takes the five talents and goes and puts it to work according to his master's will. One takes the two, goes and puts it to work according to the master's will. And then you have the one servant who is given one talent, who is given the lightest load of all of them. And he went, I, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I will bury it. That way nothing bad happens. And when the master comes back, Jesus talks. The first one, well done, good and faithful servant. The second one, well done, good and faithful servant. The third one, you wicked servant. Wicked. As one pastor put it, we might, we might say the servant was lazy or short-sighted or unfaithful, but you wicked servant. Understand, church family, what James is driving at today is this mindset, this mindset that says, I have the right and the ability and the foresight to plan and order my life. Here's what my plan is. Here's what my order is. I'm going to go about it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it. That while it may be prized and valued by the world and might even look from a certain viewpoint as responsible, in the eyes of our God, it is wicked. And it is arrogant because it presumes we possess an ability and a strength and a mastery that we don't have any of. And you say, well, well, pastor, I think I'm following you, but I mean, we don't, 
How do we really do that? Well, oh, church family, we do it. Make no mistake, we do it. There's a subtlety, though, to how we're impacted by it. Let me give you an example. I know we got a couple. If you're in junior high, raise your hand. Oh, you're terrified now. 13-year-old, don't want to. Ah, I see a couple. They're, they're kind of mealy. Here's, here's what goes on for a junior high. Junior high kid, 12, 13 years old. They've just stepped into junior high. All right, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Well, I think, I, I think this is cool. Great, then you're in this special track, and this special track's going to put you through here. It's going to shoot you to this high school where you're going to be in this special track. You're going to have all these things to build up your resume, which is going to put you out in one of these 10 colleges. These are the better of those 10 colleges. If you go to these colleges, if you will sacrifice everything to get in here, to jump into this engineering school, to get into this business school, you're guaranteed six-figure job out of college, and then what on else? Even when we come up with 10-year plans or five-year plans or here, here's my plan. And listen, let me be clear here. The issue for James is not planning. We'll come back to that in a moment. The issue is not planning of any kind. It's planning that excludes the Lord's will and the Lord's ways, both general and specific on our life, from that planning and ordering. So when I sit down and all of a sudden I say, oh man, God, you are good Sunday morning. What a good time of worship. Praise God. And now that I'm home sitting out my New Year's resolutions, I don't pray about any of them. I don't ask the Lord what his will for this year would be in my life. Man, but I pull up a lot of videos on Instagram and I pull off a couple good books from Barnes and Nobles and I make it all according to the pattern of some great, some great minds of this world. We do it. How many times have I watched a parent have a plan for their child well, not my child. I'm so, sorry, son. That's great that you have a love for music. That's not the plan. The plan is going into the family business. The plan is, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. The plan is, oh, daughter, you're sensing the Lord wanting to take. No, that's not the plan. Let's be very, very clear, because this is a great danger that I have watched as someone who's been a student pastor, a college pastor. If you are a parent, if you are a grandparent in this room, if you have an influence over the life of children, let's be very clear. God did not grant me a daughter for her to live out my will for her life. God gave me a daughter to love, to reflect his character to, to proclaim his gospel to, to pray that she comes to faith in Christ, to disciple her to love Jesus with all her heart, to follow Jesus wherever he takes her, to live out his will for her life, not mine. Amen. Yet how many, and I'm not picking, I'm just picking on what I know, Dad Gummit's son, I'm an Aggie, and you will go to Texas A&M. <laughs> we look at when a person says, here's all my goals in life. Wow, you're ambitious. Then you've got a person over here who says, you know what? Here's the school I could afford. I got a job that was offered that, that the Lord seemed to open the door to. No, I'm not the CEO of a company. I'm not probably on a one-way track to a six-figure job. All I am is a shoe cobbler. And we'd go, man, how irresponsible. Where's that drive? Yet let's remember, 
It wasn't the CEO of the company that faithfully taught Sunday school in a New England church that went after the young boy across the street that the Spirit laid on his heart. It was a shoe cobbler named Edward Kimball who went after that young boy faithfully teaching Sunday school that God used to lead that young boy to Christ, and that young boy would grow up to be D.L. Moody who led millions to faith in Christ. We do it in so many ways. Here's when I'm going to retire. Well, let's be clear, there's nothing wrong with retirement. But retirement in your order and your plans for your purposes and your vacation without any consideration to God, how God, when God would have you retire, where God would have you retire, how God would use your retirement. Do you want to know one of the biggest groups that leaves the church today? We all get caught up, all the young people who leave the church when they go to college. You know there's actually another group that's just as large? It's the empty nesters. Our kids are out of the house. We're getting close to retirement. We're going to retire, and we're going to go travel everywhere we want and disappear from the church. Not because our beliefs have necessarily been challenged by, by false beliefs, but because we have a plan and an order for our life that says, well, we're retirement age. We get to do whatever we want now. I don't care if you're work age, retirement age, children age. You never get to do whatever you want. You get the freedom to do what God wants. We do this. Think about, think about every student who's come home from college in the last month as we've been on Christmas break. Think about the high school kids. Where are you going for college? What are you going to study and do for the rest of your life? Are you dating anybody? Oh, you are dating anybody. When are you getting engaged? Oh, you are engaged. When are you getting married? Hey, you just got, I know you just got married last week and you got back from honeymoon. When are you having kids? Where are you going on vacation? Where are the kids going to go to school? When are you going to retire? These are the kind of questions. And don't hear, hear me, church family. I'm not saying we can't ask. Some of those are just basic questions. Hey, tell me what's going on in life. But sometimes those questions reflect a heart and a subtle idolatry of the plans that we come up with instead of, hey, how's God moving in your life? Where do you sense God directing your steps this this next semester? Who's God laid in your path to minister to? And in what ways are you trying to minister to them? We don't ask those questions. We can send our church family. We need to be clear because God is sovereign over life itself. And because as believers, if we in fact are in Christ, he is Lord over the details of our lives. God never intended us to live our life to fulfill earthly goals and fleshly pursuits to plan and order our lives exclusively around the agenda that we're subtly and overtly taught by society is to live in an arrogant, selfish, and and it is inadequate for our hearts. The truth is God does have a real plan and a purpose. It's not always easy. It often may not involve our wish list of the flesh, but our call is to seek, to live seeking and following Him in a humble way diligence. See, part of what, and and what we've been walking through when I say, look at all these ways we can subtly be all about this. It's because we need to recognize as believers where we're guilty, where where we're walking in arrogance. We need to be able to, to recognize it, and then we need to be able to go, wow, God, your word says this arrogance 
even if it's subtle, even if it's with kind intention, it's wicked for, Lord, I'm repenting, I'm turning, I'm acknowledging that my life is more driven, whether it's long-term plans or daily goals, is more driven by my agenda than by yours. That's part, but the second part is this. Well, what are we to do? Well, he tells us, posture of your heart, if the Lord wills, there should be a humble diligence. There should be a humble diligence. And notice what he says, if the Lord wills, we will live or also do this or that. Well, that implies it's okay to plan on living because you don't know. We're not supposed to just sit around and do nothing until the Lord calls us home. Count on living until the Lord says, come home. Not only that, but we will do this or that implies that there is a place for planning. And some of you who are diehard planners went, okay, good, I don't have to throw the new calendar away. I don't have to undo my new color code system. There's a place for planning, but we hold those plans, we hold those dreams, we hold those desires loosely and in humility on our knees before the throne of God saying, not my will, Lord. Oh, here's what I'd love this year to be. Here's what I'd love to do this year, but not my will, Lord, yours be done. It also means we don't walk in some kind of fatalistic doom. Well, I can't plan. Pastor said I can't plan anything. So I'm just going to do nothing. Well, no, that's also what that servant did, and that servant was called wicked. What it is is in humility we seek the Lord. In a humble, persevering diligence, we seek the Lord. We seek a personal relationship. We're not just seeking to get a chapter out of a book. We're seeking a real person, God himself, Jesus Christ, the Lord Almighty who speaks to us, who hears our prayer, who hears our cries, who it says in Psalm, uh, one of the places I was reading this week, Psalm uh, 39, for his name's sake leads and guides us, both long-term and short-term, both general and specific. We seek him. We seek him through his word where the majority of his will for our life is clearly revealed. We seek him through prayer. James tells us to pray for wisdom and direction. We pray confidently in prayer, knowing that when we come to God, listen, God has a plan and will for our life, and there is nobody who delights us to know that plan more than God. He's not trying to be cryptic or hide things. If something's hidden from us, it means we don't need to know it. But we do need to be continually seeking Him. We seek Him through prayer. Prayer also involves learning to listen and not just talk. Lord, you've blessed us with this, this money this year. We, we would sure love to take a vacation. We don't have any checks in our spirit as we seek you that, that we can't take a vacation, but Lord, we just want to acknowledge that we want your will, so give us wisdom as we plan it, and if we go somewhere or we take steps we shouldn't, we're trusting you to, to show up, to tell us no, to tell us stop. And we're going to listen. We seek through community. Listen, church family, we don't, we don't seek, we don't walk in humble diligence with God alone. We do it together. We're not seeking to walk if the Lord, or, or Lord, if you will. We're not trying to walk out that will alone. We do it together. That's why Scripture says don't, don't cut yourself off. Don't, don't be like the habit of some who remove themselves and aren't faithful to be with the church body, but, but in the midst of the church body where there are those with wise and godly counsel who can pray for us, who can see blind spots we can't, we do it together in community. See, humble diligence seeks the Lord, church family. Humble diligence submits to the Lord. As we plan, as we yield, we, we, plan, we plan our lives, we order our lives according to the Lord's will. And, and, and let me just be real clear, for most of us, what that's gonna mean 
is less about where does God want you to go to college or what date to retire as it is this. When you order your life, do you order life in such a way that you complain often and pray at dinner time? Or do you order your life in such a way that you rejoice always and pray without ceasing for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus? Do you order your life in terms of I'm, I'm going to take this thing on that, that in taking this thing on, it's going to leave me at a point where I can no longer be faithful in the body? When Scripture says, do not neglect the body as is the habit of some, but be all the more faithful, especially as you see the day coming. Is it an ordering of life that does one of two things as we see the world go to all sorts of places that for most of us in our lifetime, we've never seen it and it's frightening? We either fall over to the camp of paralyzed fear where we're all wrapped up in it and we're constantly checking the news and we're constantly seeing this and we're constantly, or we go to the other way where we go, I can't handle that stress, so out of sight, out of mind, let's live, eat, be merry, and go about our business. Because in Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about the nearness of the end of time, he mentions that don't be afraid and that at the return of Christ, people will be going about life merry as if nothing's going on. And then he gives this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faithfulness? Will he find faithfulness? For most of us, it just means the daily things of life. How do, we, how do we order? How do we work? And in that humble diligence, we follow the Lord, his will, his ways. We do so with joy. And maybe if we find that submitting our will and our ways and the order of our life and our plans produces a lack of joy, perhaps there what that is revealing is there's some aspect of idolatry or a misunderstanding of God, something that needs to be dealt with in truth because the Lord's plans are joyful, even if they're hard. Father, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will but yours be done for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Now, here's where all this comes, church family. Because God is sovereign over life, because as followers of Christ, he's Lord over the details of our life, we must reject an arrogant self-sufficiency and in a humble diligence seek him and submit to him. Here's where this comes to. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does it do it, to him it's sin. Now, that verse, understand, church family, we could take that verse and we could preach a whole Sunday on it. Because what that verse says, if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, it's just as sinful as knowing what the wrong thing is and choosing to do the wrong thing. The way some would put it, sins of omission are just as sinful as sins of commission. And a lot of times we think, well, I'm not actively trying to do something wrong, so I'm not sinning. No, but has God told you what you are to be doing and you're refusing to do it? Because that's just as sinful. Now, that applies to a lot of things. We can apply that to prayer. We can apply that to evangelism. We can apply that uh, to pick your category. But isn't it interesting, James specifically pulls that out with this passage. It says, therefore, it's, it's deeply connected to it. In light of this truth, to the one that knows what is right and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. To the one that knows that God is sovereign over life and he is Lord over the details of their life, but fails to ever humble themselves and diligently seek and submit to the Lord, it is sin, no matter how good it looks. See, there's a young man that I knew growing up. He came from a great home, godly parents, and we were both in high school, 
God moved and stirred in his life. God called him into ministry. He, he sensed that call to go overseas as a missionary. And he remained loyal to that call throughout high school. I watched him in college. He, he had even had people in college, well, when you get over that missions craze, come back, you'd be a great lawyer. Well, come back, you'd be, you'd be he remained loyal. This is what God's called. I am, I am staying on God's plan. Went through college, got his degree, met the love of his life, got what he needed from seminary, they got married, and they've been faithfully serving overseas. He would not allow the world's agenda to drive, oh, but wait, that's not the story of that young man. That young man did come from a great Christian home. He did come to know Christ at a young age. God did call him full-time into ministry in high school. He did understand that to be overseas. But somewhere between that sense and as time went on, that young man became gripped by his plan of how God would work that calling out. His plan that like his parents and grandparents, he would go to college, meet the love of his life. His plan that they would go overseas never to be seen from again. His plan. It was God's call. But he took what is God's call and is holy. And rather than walking in humble submission to God who has the right to dictate where the path goes on that call, who alone knows the rest of that path, he made his own plan. And so what happened is, there in that last year of college, he began to walk in a pattern. He sought the Lord. He would read his Bible. He was doing lots of ministry. But there was a distrust in the Lord because the Lord was starting to take him down a path inside of his call in ministry he did never expect. That same person ended up breaking the heart of a sweet young lady because they really thought they were going to get married because of all this plan when the Lord wasn't in it. That young man trucked into seminary, overextended himself, ended up in the ER twice to where he had to pull out of seminary for a year. And in that year of quiet, that young man was humbled from those plans. And the Lord began to heal and restore things in that young man. And the Lord took that young man who when he was a child looked up at the pastor preaching and said, God, I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up, but I will never be that because that terrifies me. <laughs> and God took that young man who said, I will never work with students and brought him out of college into seminary as a student pastor. And God brought that young man who as a child would have killed over to know he would marry in his later 20s a UT grad. <laughs> and God took that child back to his hometown where when he left to go to college, he never thought he'd ever live again. And God took that child and brought him here as your pastor to preach this word today. Amen. Church family, understand there is such a subtleness that we can even take the good call and plans of God. And if out of our belief that we know, that we have, that we're directing, we can take even those things and seize them selfishly, which even that is arrogant and wicked. 
Our job is not to seize the plans. Our job is to know what is right and to do it, which is to humbly, faithfully, and diligently seek the Lord to submit to His plans and His ways because if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do. Let's pray. Father, I'm so very grateful because there's another layer to this story, God, which is all of us, all of us in our lives undoubtedly have areas where we are arrogant and we don't see it. We've been saved by your grace. We, we know you. We, we, we love you. We're, we're seeking to walk with you. But there are areas where we, in our own self-sufficiency, believe we can take it and claim it and do. Lord, all of us have that. But the other element, Lord, is being in you. You are faithful even when we are faithless. That you are persistent even when we are arrogant. And that, Lord, even when in whatever part of our life it is, we have planned and ordered according to our own pattern, according to, according to the impulses of society, according to that you come after. And Holy Spirit, you who live within, you convict from within. That, Father, in the, in the, in the, in the presence of your church, you convict from, from outside taking your word that you, you don't just sit back and go, you know what, child? You just walk out your plan. I'm not going to intervene. You intervene, Lord. And maybe for some today in this room, this, this is your intervention here as we start a new year. To lay down their plans. To think about the way they order their daily life. Their weekly life. To think about long-term goals. To think about how to, to say, Lord, what is your plan, your will, your way? And where you make it clear to align their plans with that. And Lord, where you say trust for them to just trust you and keep keep walking until you redirect or turn right or left. And Father, undoubtedly, there's possibly somebody in this room or watching online whom you love dearly, whom you have a plan for their life, but their issue isn't walking in arrogance. Their issue is walking in darkness. They do not know you. They have not been saved. They have not been redeemed by your blood, Jesus, because they have not responded to your offer of salvation. Holy Spirit, as you move on hearts, may we respond to you today, whether it's in coming to faith in you, whether it's in repentance, whether it's just in praise that, God, you are good and you have a plan. Be honored, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.